0: Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And welcome to episode 123, where we will be covering chapters 11 through 13 of Gardens of the Moon by Steven Erickson.
1: Our next book club will cover chapters 14 through 16, so get yourselves ready. You want to tell them our spoiler policy? Yes, I do. Our spoiler policy is that we will not spoil anything on this podcast past chapter 13 of Gardens of the Moon. I have read this, this book. Uh, Chad has not read this book, so we like his predictions at the end, and we will not spoil anything.
0: Dig in, Pat shit crazy. <laughs>
1: Yes, indeed. Some batshit crazy things happened in this book.
0: I'm ready for it.
1: So we covered book number four of Gardens of the Moon, which is just called Assassins. You know what is one of my favorite words in the English language? The word assassins. Do you know why?
0: <laughs> um, Because it rhymes with asphalt or begins with the same letters as asphalt?
1: Because it sounds like this killer badass word, but really it's just the word "ass" twice. Yeah, <laughs> and every time I write it down in my notes, I go ass ass
0: ass ass in. Oh, <laughs> uh, all
1: right. Sorry, that is my twelve-year-old boy coming out. My get, inner twelve-year-old yeah, boy. Right.
0: Get the get the juvenile jokes out now. I'm sure there won't be any others in the podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you think of book four? Assassin. I, I
0: enjoyed it. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. We're I think just a scotch over halfway through the book, and I'm like, like I really have don't know where this is going to go. <laughs> like, really don't can't hundred percent put my finger on what the hell's going on. So, um, but no, yeah, I enjoyed. Erickson it.
1: does not project. He does not project plot points or character arcs. You really can't tell.
0: No, I mean I. I know this is all going to be about the, you know, the Battle of Darujistan. Right. I I feel like the Empire is going to get its ass kicked, but that's about as much as I know.
1: You're just kind of holding onto your ass with both hands, I, both, trying to keep up at this point. Trying to keep both
0: <laughs> asses in.
1: <laughs> yes. All right, well, let's start off with Chapter 11. Let's do it. In this chapter, Krupp has the weirdest labor dream ever. Sorry tracks Krupp to the inn and engages in a light spot of murder. Crocus finally finds motivation to leave his life of crime and Quick Ben embarks on a dangerous journey through the Warren of Chaos into the realm of Shadow. It's so weird. These are some of the weirdest chapter summaries I think I've ever written, you know.
0: I can see why.
1: I think that, that if someone just kind of went through and just read the chapter summaries of other books we've covered, you could kind of follow the story. But with this book, you would just be like, what the fuck is a Warren of chaos? Yeah, no, You have you, no yeah. idea.
0: You cannot just string the chapter summaries together and think you're going to have any idea what's happening.
1: And there's no way to even uh, quickly explain things. No, there's not. Be like, well, there was a sorceress and she soul shifted herself into the desiccated body of her colleague. And then she became born again through a mystical ritual in the dream of a fat man. Like,
0: yeah. So listen, she was really old. <laughs> and then through a weird series of events, she became simultaneously really, really old <laughs> and an infant. Like, I don't, I really can't explain it any more clearly than that.
1: So let's start off with this dream that Krupp has. Krupp's landscape has been, you know, it has been introduced to us at the beginning of this section on Darugistan as okay, maybe he's sort of a prescient dreamer, but now we're realizing that there's there's something more to his dreams. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of a big reveal about Krupp in this section is that um that Krupp has made himself immune to the meddling of kind of the lesser gods and so but let's that's kind of let's start at the very beginning krupp is having another dream the fire that was set by krull the elder god he's standing over it but he's back in a this vast kind of barren landscape and he realizes that he is back at the beginning of all things um and he meets one of the first peoples who populated the, the earth, uh, a guy named Pranchol, who calls himself the White Fox. So if you haven't like really picked it up by now, there are three sort of founding races. Um, you had the, the Imas, you had the Jagu,
0: and the uh, fork rule assail
1: yes the fork rule assail were the kind of the three founding races and the fork rule assail just sort of like they sort of dipped out of have any kind of power struggle they just weren't into it <laughs> they just sort of <laughs> formed From a commune guys, they're I'm like we're just going to grow some mushrooms and be chill with the earth like that's mm-hmm. kind of where they went and the jagu and the imas they, you know, then struggled for control of the planet, and then the imas ended up turning in themselves into the Talanimas, which we know now as the undead warriors that serve the empire.
0: Now I have a uh, a clarification and or question. Yes. So I believe that Pran called himself one of the Talan. yes, and then he referenced like the the magic or the power that they use as the emas. So I took it that the people were called the Talan, and the the power, the magic, or the sundering that was going to happen was a part of the Imos, and then after this they forever became known as the Talan Imos.
1: My understanding is that the people were the the Imos. Mm-hmm. Talan is sort of like clan, so he okay. was of the Crone Talan, okay. which is a sub clan of the Emas. but there is a. A, a saying that the emas had, um, fire is life and life is fire. That is uh, one of the first things that Pran Chol says to Krupp.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that harkens back to something we read in chapter 10 between Tool and Lorne. Mm-hmm. Um, when she, the, the saying is fire is life, life is fire. With such words were born the first empire, the empire of the Emos, the empire of humanity. So humans came from the emas. I hope I'm saying that right. I hope it's not emas, but that doesn't sound right, right?
0: No, it doesn't. Emas? Sa- no, it sounds like Gene Tannen. Gene
1: Tannen, don't you dare.
0: All the way back to episode 32. For
1: that <laughs> okay, so so Pran Chol and Krupp are approached by a pregnant rivi woman. The rivi are the people of the Plains and this is um they're told that the Talan Warren of the Emas so that's the source of the Emas's magic is mm-hmm. called the Talon. the Talan Warren of the Emas birthed a child in a confluence of sorcery so this is what we saw happening with Tattersail
2: mm-hmm.
1: the um the Talan Emas tool who was traveling with Lorne had this sort of bubble of sorcery around himself mm-hmm. and um, Tattersail was told that if she opened her warren, her, um, fear warren, the warren of light inside that bubble, shit was going to go down. It turns out that what Tattersail did was cast her soul into the dead body of Nightchill, who was, I, I'm just kind of rehashing because it took me like four read throughs to understand to, to all, get of this. all of
0: this together. Yeah.
1: She cast her soul into the dead body of Nightchill, who, uh, over whom she had already cast a, a spell of protection and sealing to keep the smell out, and managed to then, like, preserve her life in this, in this dead body. Krupp is told that, it, that this child's flesh is an abomination. Understatement.
0: It's going to be ugly. <laughs> Get yourself ready.
1: But what's really significant is that Krull, the elder god, then tells Krupp that he has chosen Krupp's dream as a meeting place for this shifting to happen. And he says that because your soul is immune to the younger gods, this is a safe space.
0: Yeah, so what I sort of was thinking about and questioning as I'm reading through this is we we have Krupp, who's from the present time. Uh, Corral, who's from the past, but Mm -hmm. is reawakened. We have the Talanamas back before they became the Mm Talanamas. So we're going back, you know, 300,000 years. Mm -hmm. They are the predecessor race to the humans, but also the Rivi, which I presume came later, are also there. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What I'm getting at is it seems like this is something that exists outside of time. It's not... Yes. He hasn't gone back in time 300,000 years. Right. This is something that exists outside of time entirely. So I guess the question then becomes, what does that mean for Tattersail, mm-hmm. who is now being, you know, simultaneously born? She died, you know, in the present, is going to mm-hmm. be born 300,000 years ago, but mm-hmm. also in the present, you know... Where where is she going to end end up? You know, I mean, we and we don't know the answer right. to that to that yet. You know, we ended at last section. You know, I was fairly confident that, um, you know, we were pretty confident that Tattersail wasn't dead, dead, right? You know, that something was going to happen. That that wasn't really m- much of a mystery, mm-hmm. but we had no idea what was going to happen. Now we know that she's been reborn in this weird stasis place, but we still don't really know how it's going to play out, right? Or if she's going to have any further role in this book,
1: I mean, it'd be a super bummer if she didn't. <laughs> it was like okay. I think
0: it'd be kind of cool if she showed up three books later, twenty five years old. Oh, in this old. book, okay, yeah, in, in this book, book. not okay. in this series, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in this book.
1: If she didn't show up again in the series, oh then... no,
0: that would that would be a big bummer. No, I'm to- <laughs> totally with you there. So then there's this whole exchange uh, between Carol and Krupp talking about things that are going on in the present tense that I thought was really informative. And it's another one of these sections where like every sentence is something that you can unpack. Right. You know, this is towards the end. This is after he's met Tattersail and they've kind of birthed Tattersail. Oh, can
1: I say, I just love how when he, okay, so there, so Carole tells Krupp, okay, this is your dream. You need to welcome her into it. That's Mm -hmm. your part. And so he goes over and he's like, yo, corpse lady. And she turns around and starts following him. And Krupp's like, oh, yeah, I got it. (laughs) I got it with the ladies. (laughs) So funny. She's busted up, but she's all mine. (laughs) (laughs) And then is the weirdest, one of the weirdest things we've seen. And we've seen reanimated puppets here in this book. But so the corpse comes over, the the. Rivy woman has a, a pr- huge pregnant belly, but there's no child inside, we're told. We don't know what's going on there. It's got a white fox. She's got a white fox tattooed on the outside of it. Mm-hmm. She, cl- she clutches this desiccated corpse to her chest. Power gets sucked out of Pranchol, mm-hmm. you know, and into this and to form this baby. And then she gives birth right away. And the white fox tattoo disappears. And
0: the baby comes out covered in white fur.
1: Holla. (laughs) I'm just saying, when it comes to soul shifting, Tattersail can tell Hairlock to suck it. Like, (laughs) hers is way better.
0: (laughs) That's pretty, yeah, that's true. I would agree with that.
1: But what comes across is that even the characters themselves, even these elder characters, kind of all most powerful beings out there, have never seen anything like this before. It's made very clear that there's like, there's maybe been soul shifting, but nothing like this, really. And the elder god, I think, tells Krupp, I, I have no idea what's gonna happen here. We yeah. have like the mm-hmm. Imos magic, the, the tear warren, we've got, you know, this weird spell of preservation. He said this is the moon is involved somehow. He's like, I don't even know yeah, how yeah. this is gonna play out.
0: So then Krupp and Kral have this sort of exchange here towards the end, and Krupp says, My, Krupp breathed, but Krupp's dreams have taken a strange turn. <laughs> While his own concerns are ever-present, a haunting voice, once again he must set them aside. Suddenly Kral stood beside him. Not so. It is not my way to use you without just recompense. Speak to me of your efforts. Rollick and Murillo seek to right an old wrong, Krupp said with a sigh. They think me ignorant of their schemes, but I shall turn such schemes to my purpose. Guilt rides this decision, but they are needed. And then they say, understood And the coin bearer, says carol Protection has been set in motion, though its final shaping is yet to come. I know that the Malazan empire is present in Darujistan, covertly for the moment. What they seek is anything but clear, Krupp, even to them, says carol Use this to your advantage when you find them. Allies might come from surprising quarters. I'll tell you this, the two now approach the city, one two now approach the city, one is a Talanamas; the other bane to magic. Their purposes are destructive, but already forces are in play attending to them. Seek knowledge of them, but do not openly oppose them. They are dangerous. Power attracts power, Krupp. Leave them to the consequences of their actions. Krupp nodded. Krupp is no fool, Corral. He openly opposes no one, and he finds power a thing to be avoided at all costs. So that I read you a long exchange, and I even mm-hmm. abbreviated a little bit,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but there's a lot in that section. Unpack,
1: yeah. Don't step to Tool and Lorne, as, which is I, I assume who.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. was
1: talking about. So yes, Krull offers to repay Krupp for the use of his dream, and what Krupp wants is help with Ralik and Murillo's scheme. And I and I think it's significant that he tells Lorne. It tells Krupp to leave Lorne and Tool to the consequences of their actions.
0: Yeah, let's let's kind of go back and and break them down a little bit more inside. So, and Murillo seek to right an old wrong. They think me ignorant of their schemes, but I shall turn such schemes to my purposes. He says. But the only thing we know about Krupp at this point is that although he he has friendships and relationships, and he's supposed to be an agent of Baruch. He is playing his own game. Absolutely. His ultimate loyalty is his his own. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it's to. So we have no idea who he will ultimately be loyal to. So when he says, you know, I shall turn their schemes to my purposes, we really don't know what his purposes are. Mm -hmm. Other than, I guess we can presume, based on some of his other dreams, he wants to protect his friends in Darugestown. He seems to have sort of a protective, mm-hmm. you know, vibe about him, but we really don't, I can't begin to guess how, you know, using Rollick and Murillo to his purpose, what that means. Mm-hmm. Then the other thing that's sort of strange about that is he says, guilt rides this decision, but they are needed. And that makes me a little bit uneasy because I'm thinking, mm-hmm. why would you be like, you know, are you putting them in a dangerous position, or are they going to mm-hmm. potentially get harmed mm-hmm. by your involvement in their scheme? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a little bit that's a little bit disheartening. Also, he seems to be at least Baruch is telling him, you know, to get Rollick and Murillo out of town. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be counter to what they're trying to do because they're trying somehow to to pull off some big. You know, some big, I don't know, it it seems like almost like a grift of the upper class that they're trying to pull Mm -hmm. to somehow get Call, you know, reinstated and get Mm -hmm. Lady Simtal out of power. Right. You know, and that has nothing to do with leaving town Mm -hmm. and, you know, standing watch over a, a Jagu crypt. Right. So, you know. It's a, there's a lot of words there. It's a lot of don't words. don't know what they mean. And then when we talk about Lorne and the, and, uh, Tool, he says, their purposes are destructive, but forces are already in play attending to them. Do not openly oppose them, as we said. They are dangerous. Leave them to the consequences of their actions. So we know that, we know that they're going, or I guess we presume that they are going to open up Attempt to open up the Jagu Crypt. Mm -hmm. I don't think we know precisely what's there. I think they just presume that there's something really powerful there, right? And you know they and they want to get it, secure it, I guess, before you know war breaks out.
1: Mm -hmm. But more will be revealed.
0: More will be revealed. I think that Jagu Crypt is going to be revealed, and I think it's going to be like the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs)
1: Everyone's faces melt off.
0: And and Tula's like, oh no, my face is gonna do nothing.
1: (laughs) So we pick up after the dream and we pick up immediately after Krupp's meeting with Baruch, which happened in the last book. Mm -hmm. So we had Krupp had this meeting with Baruch and it's neat now how some of the things that happened then um, serve as like like, like a, a placeholder, a reminder that, oh yeah, mm-hmm. this this is what just happened. You know, Baruch, um, remember him spilling the red ink and getting red ink on his hands. Yep. Whiskey so Jack looks are,
0: up and he has red ink on his hands. Yeah.
1: Yep, Whiskey Jack looks up, he looks down, he notices the road workers. Yeah. It just pulls you, it, that's just kind of a, a neat little storytelling moment there. That you're like, oh yeah, that's what, what was going on here. And now we see it from a couple of different angles. Mm-hmm. So Krupp is leaving this meeting with Baruch He the steward asks him to shut the gate. Uh, He makes it a few steps out into the street and then he goes remembers that he needs to go back and shut the gate. And as he does that, this overwhelming sort of psychic, I don't even know how to describe it, like this psychic force kind of hits him and it's like an instant migraine and Mm -hmm. something has happened. And he says, oh, that was really lucky that I wasn't standing in the street Mm -hmm. when that happened, because, you know, for him keeping his power Hidden is uh, is a big part of what he does, mm-hmm. and you know Krupp is just such an interesting fellow. You know, I think about how he he tells Krull that he finds power a thing to be avoided, and he really actually seems to mean it.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's just a, it's a really neat contrast to some of the other characters that we've seen, Lorne and Lazine, um, many others in and outside of the Empire who seek power for its own sake. And he seems to almost avoid it for its own sake. And I think that's a really important theme in this book. Like what, what, not only like what happens when rulers become all powerful but like what we do with power and how that affects us
0: well i think we see a lot of parallels with corrupt and quick Ben in this in that particular vein
1: absolutely as
0: we find out more and we'll talk more about quick Ben later but we also find out that quick Ben also and we've we've noted this before seems to be more powerful than his station would lead you to indicate
1: right Right. And but Quick Ben kind of he does that as a way of protecting himself because he mm-hmm. has extremely powerful enemies.
0: But we don't know what Krupp's motivations are, but it may it could very well be the same thing.
1: It could be. It also could be that Krupp is kind of lazy and he really just wants to sit back and eat pastries.
0: Yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> but I think that's like just one of the most important themes in this book is you know what we do with power and how we choose to exert it over the others. I read this this really good essay, Um, and please remind me to to put the source on the on the website or the Facebook page. Um, But it was talking about about power in literature and how every story is really kind of a story about power of some kind, Mm -hmm. and how really the only difference between a hero and a villain is how they use their power. You know, um, heroes use their power to make the world better to protect others to right injustice and villains use their power to exert control over others. There's this like trope of the hero refusing power three times, Mm. you know, refusing to to use their power until like the villain pushes them so many Mm
0: -hmm. in so many ways. And so
1: I think it's neat to see Krupp kind of being like, you know, so far we've just seen him use his power literally to steal candy. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's it. But I was thinking about the kinds of power in Malazan, and of course I came up with a chart. Oh. Ta-da. Oh, it's a graph. It's a graph. I'll put it up. I will put this up on the Facebook page. I was thinking about there's power over other people, and then there's power sort of over the elements, over Mm. things like death and... Um, and the Warrens and all of that. Mm. So I have the the power over others kind of being on the X axis and then power over the elements being the Y axis. And what I want to point out is we've got like clusters of people over here. We've got in the far upper right corner, we've got Andamander Rake and Kaladan Brood and Lazine mm. and all of those people. And then we've got some people down here who are, you know, have control over others, but not, any kind of magical abilities, do jack and whiskey jack, mm-hmm. the bridge burners. But now, over here in the far lower left corner, I have call
2: <laughs> call who
1: has no power over anybody or anything. Yeah, <laughs> and yet I think he is being set up to be kind of a linchpin of important events in that he has got this, he is somehow inspired loyalty in this band of friends mm-hmm. who are willing to turn the city upside down in order to help him. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very significant thing. And what kind of power do you have? There's like this overt, I'm gonna kill everyone else so I can be the empress. And then there's this this more subtle, but even more important and powerful, I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna be the kind of person that inspires loyalty in others Mm -hmm. so that... Um, but not for my own sake, and it's kind of which of those is going to win out. I'm way off on a tangent, but <laughs> I made a chart, and it <laughs> made me happy. So, well, it,
0: it, you know if you want to if you want to make your chart even a little bit more complicated and give it some some more dimension, you can also start looking at at what happened with Quoth. And mm. and the mayor mm-hmm. and talk about, you know, granted power versus implied power. Oh,
1: or, yeah. Absolutely. You know. So. And, absolutely. And
0: really turn this into, into a 300-level college, college class essay <laughs> that a professor will go, mm, sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is sadly accurate. Let's move on.
0: So let's. I want to. I want to go back to corrupt and his my his sudden migraine. Yes. So he walks out the street. Remembers that he he didn't close the gate. And again, this was one that I had to read it three times before I was like, before I thought I mm-hmm. sort of understood what was happening. Right. So he runs back in. He gets his headache. Now we have seen people get um, headaches when there's blossom blossomings of magic. Yes. Particularly when they oppose that person's Warren. Right. You know, we see it with uh Tattersail and of course I can't think of his name, the ma Tashrin, Tattersail Tattersale right. and Tashrin. So when Krupp comes back out and he sort of walks past the bridge burners, sorry is there and follows him. Mm-hmm. So and also he, you know, Krupp says uh that when you know after he after he gets back up, he says that was indeed a Malazan curse, then why does House Shadow's image burn like fire and corrupt skull?
2: Mm-hmm. Who
0: now walks these streets of Darujistan? A count of knots unending. And mm-hmm.
2: then
0: we flash to sorry mm-hmm. saying, I don't know what's going on with that dude, but I'm gonna follow him. Mm-hmm. So he is, you know, sensing, although he doesn't at the time he doesn't really know what it is, he figures it out pretty quickly. He's sensing sorry and the magic of the Shadow Warren mm-hmm. um, following him.
1: And the rope, you know?
0: hmm yeah. He senses the rope. And that causes me to wonder, is wherever Krupp gets his power from somehow anathema to High House Shadow? Is it somehow opposed, you know, or diametrically opposite High House Shadow?
1: Well, what we know is he has made his soul immune to all of the Ascendants. So mm. all of the lesser gods, yeah. he has made himself immune to, which makes Sari realize. I mean, that's what I think is affecting Cotillion as the you know kind of the head honcho of one of the ascendants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of kind of peaks peaks her, her interest, but then she has an interesting reaction to when Whiskey Jack mentions the word seer. So she tells Whiskey Jack, "I got to follow this guy," and he said something about. Uh, they're being a seer, and
0: yeah, he he asks her, "Is he a seer?" Right? Yeah, and she's like, "I don't know, but I got to follow him." And then as she's walking along, she's like, "Seer, seer, seer," mm-hmm.
1: and
0: she has she has her own little psychic episode.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rigolet the seer is still in there,
0: and uh, and appears to be awakening in some capacity, and and even some slight you know, echoes of the young Fisher girl. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. it's right about here that Sari says, you know, she was but a, or I think Whiskey Jack says, she was but a 17-year-old girl, but she was ancient. And I first read that, and I said, okay, and then I, that seems strange. And then I was like, wait a minute, 17? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I went back and tried to like read some of the beginning stuff with sorry. Mm -hmm. She is described as being like 12 years old. Right. And it was my understanding that it's only been like two or three years.
1: No, it's been longer than that. That she's been clawing her way up from the time of of pale. I think it's been more like five years.
0: So, okay, so let's talk about the timeline then because I'm confused. Okay. So we have the stuff that happened at It Khan when she was 12.
1: So the 12 is a question mark. We do not know. She could be 12, she could be could have been 14. It does it really doesn't tell us how hmm. old she was. I think maybe the guards the guardsman when she signs up thinks she's 13ish.
0: Yeah, it's not like she says what her age is. No, she doesn't
1: come up and say I'm 12 years old. So I think that might be where where things are sketchy for you. But so
0: okay, so so I. But here's my nonetheless. Here's my question. So we have Idko Khan, and then a couple of years pass before we get to the siege at Pale, right? But then all this stuff happening in Derusha stand is happening like a couple of weeks later. Correct. Okay. So you're saying that she was 15, but looked like she was 12.
1: I'm saying she could have been thirteen, fourteen, and it's been three or four years.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, we can certainly go back.
0: I mean, later she specifically and... says it's been two years. And but she also references herself as being seventy. It's not again, this is so this is erecting the, the a question, sail in a boat. It's not the that. The question important, for you is but...
1: how old was she when she enlisted? They do not tell us that. The only information we have about her age um, back way back in chapter one is the recruiter thinking she can't be more than 13. I mean, I think the point that we're supposed to take away from this is this girl was very, very young and was allowed to enlist in the military into the most kind of dangerous campaign and division that there was and then spent several years murdering her way into the bridge burners.
0: On that we are agreed.
1: Yes. I, I think that's what we're supposed to take away from this. And there's a there's this kind of Whiskey Jack is really starting to struggle with um his his feelings surrounding sorry. Um he so here's this young girl that's been, you know, she's in his unit. Nobody likes her. Basically his two most trusted um people and powerful lieutenants want to kill her and are telling him that there is something seriously wrong with her. He's got this sort of internal monologue going on here where he equates sorry to himself. And he says... Uh, when he looks at Sorry, when he looked on Sorry at Grey Dog, the source of his horror lay in the unveiling of what he was becoming, a killer stripped of remorse, armored in the cold iron of inhumanity, freed from the necessity to ask questions, to seek answers, to fashion a reasonable life like an island in a sea of slaughter. In the empty eyes of this child, he'd seen the withering of his own soul. The reflection had been unblemished with no imperfections to challenge the truth of what he saw. And I think that that is what's really important in this interaction here it's that whiskey jack can't accept that there's anything supernatural about this child mm-hmm. because he just sees in her a reflection of himself and like holding on to kind of that last hope that he could somehow become a regular human again mm-hmm. is what is keeping him from recognizing that oh hey she's actually possessed by a um semi Deity slash assassin, yeah, you know, and how powerful that hope is—that that we can be redeemed, and especially if we—we we see it all the time. Like, like when we really have you ever really connected to a celebrity and gotten defensive over them? Yeah. Who was like. <laughs> Because you see, like, you don't know that person, but you identify with their struggle, and it's something you struggle with too. And so you become defensive of them, and you really want them to overcome it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think we can all relate to that. And that's kind of what Whiskey Jack has going on with Sorry. But more and more, he's starting to be like, eh, but maybe <laughs> there might be something else going on here.
0: So you're saying that Taylor Swift is possessed by an evil assassin?
1: I am not saying that (laughs) per se. I'm
0: just saying she's putting out albums like Woman Possessed.
1: (laughs) We are not bringing Tay Swift into this. (laughs) So also, while all of this is going on, I just want to point out that the bridge burners are burying munitions in the middle of the street (laughs) A post they're just burying explosives
0: while acting like a bunch of arguing workers
1: why'd you put the tile there blah 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 you <laughs> you
0: dropped it on my foot all the while planting mines <laughs> in the street
1: in in a street in a city that is on top of a giant pocket of natural gas I know right I mean that's a setup and
0: they and they know it
1: is oh yeah they're very excited about it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, there's not a whole lot of like guffaws and and like outright humor in this book, but this one passage did make me kind of ha out loud. Whiskey Jack thinks, all in all, Whiskey Jack concluded, everyone around him had assumed the role of heat crazed street worker with a facility he found slightly disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's all what's going on was he looks up and sees Jack standing in the window with red hands.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh. You mean you mean Baruch, not Baruch. DJ, but, yes, yeah, yeah. sorry, mm.
1: Baruch. That's a lot. That was three pages of notes for that <laughs> thirty-second interaction. But let's move on to Crocus. Crocus in this chapter, Crocus has some kind of intriguing internal things going on as well.
0: Well, we get a lot of inside of Crocus's head because he's pretty much walking around in a day, like a day. He's a day
1: walking day, around right? thinking. Yeah. 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 This whole time. But he's disturbed by the city's holiday celebrations because they're being used as a distraction from like the very real problems that are about to go down. Mm -hmm. There's an army marching towards us. There's this giant mountain hanging over our heads full of dragons or something. And we're all just getting ready to party. Yeah. So Crocus, we meet him and he's he's sort of like an urchin thief character. You're like, well, but then you realize he actually has some social standing that he's sort of turned his back on. And uh, he he visits his uncle Memo uh, in this and talks to him a little bit about his future. So his meeting with the darl me- maiden, meeting meaning him peeping on her when she was sleeping in her bed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but kind of has made him realize that he might want something more than just being a thief slash urchin. So he shows up to visit his uncle and be like, hey, so what are the chances that I could be like semi-respectable person in society, like, before I lose this boner for this chick. Yeah,
0: right. (laughs) But How long would it take? How long would it take me to gain, I don't know, respectability in academia? (laughs) Right.
1: Memo is like, eight to ten months? Yeah, right. I'm like, what? 20,
0: 30 years? Uh, I also think it's an interesting comparison, his sort of, you know, criticizing everybody around him for being distracted by, you know, partying and and festivals and celebrations. All the while, he's distracted by this, like, 17-year-old chick that he peeped on, and he's making long-term plans. Same set of conditions, the Mm -hmm. army's still marching, Moonspawn's Mm -hmm. still hanging over town, so it's slightly hypocritical, (laughs) I feel like, in his, you know, criticism of everybody else around him. you know, in the midst of what he's attempting to plan here.
1: Yeah. So also, so when he shows up, his uncle Memo is writing a book on the history of Darugistan, mm-hmm. which is convenient from an exposition standpoint. Of oh, Absolutely, it is.
0: <laughs> it works out really well.
1: So I think it's been brought up, and, and it makes me think again of, the whole theme of power, how the last three rulers of Darujistan and the most important ruler that they talk about is a, a chick named um, Sandinay who ended the, the reign of tyrants. You know, there mm-hmm. were these kind of all-powerful kings in Darujistan and they were thrown off. And and that's a very important moment in the city's history. and People mm-hmm. really venerate her. So he's talking about, you know, they had the last three rulers were um, Lataste, who was usurped, you know, his power was usurped by Ektom, who was succeeded by Sandiné, who threw off all of the tyrants. Mm-hmm. And we also have this idea of, you know, um, the Jagu tyrants, who were, you know, the Jagu were these extremely powerful, one of the founding races, and um, some of them became twisted with a need for power, and they were the the Jagu tyrants, and they kind of started all of the conflict. So again, this concept of seeking power being kind of inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. So he talks about the idea that Jerujistan was being born on a rumor, and the rumor was the existence of this Jagu tyrant Barrow that one of the the ancient um, jagu tyrants was buried near the city and that its barrow held immense power for whoever could find it and uh, unleash it and that so many people came to the area looking for this barrow that an entire city developed
0: and that's also you know how they ended up tapping into these natural gas deposits Mm -hmm. you know that fuel and light the city you know I hadn't really put this together until now, and I don't know that it means anything, but Crone talks about sort of the turquoise glow of magic, but then Derujistan also has a sort of turquoise glow mm-hmm. because of the blue flame natural gas that, right. you know, that is born from it. So I don't know that that's meant to be a parallel and to say that, you know, the city runs on magic, you mm-hmm. know, untapped magical potential. But I'll go there with you. But in- interesting to speculate, <laughs> yeah. So then we get back to Sari, who is following Krupp, and Krupp goes to the Phoenix Inn, as does Crocus. So uh, Sari has her interaction with a guy outside who's a, a right prick. Oh, chert. And stabs him through the eye and then proceeds <laughs> to walk inside. I-, I noted this on her way in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is immediately after she stabs chert. You know, his body hasn't even hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And she turns around and, and is stepping through the door, says she was stopped before she'd taken her second step, coming face-to-face with a moaning boy hanging upside down. Right. Two, rough lo- look, two rough-looking women were taking turns to swing him back and forth, and every time he tried to reach up to the rope tied to his feet, he earned a knock on the head. One of the women grinned at Starry, and then Starry said, I'm sorry, I've clearly mistaken this for an inn. <laughs> What the hell?
1: Am, What's up with that?
0: Am I walking? I'm sorry. I thought I could get beer here, but this is a <laughs> clearly designed to serve a different need. <laughs> <laughs> Apropos of nothing, like that. That like it's a family atmosphere at the Phoenix Inn. Just
1: tells you all you need to know about Erlita and Mies.
0: And my understanding is that hanging upside down boy was Crocus.
1: I don't know. I don't I think that that is not correct. I would have to read it again.
0: I'm I'm that's the hill I'm dying upon.
1: Oh, you know what? I'm I'm not even going to look it up. I'm just going to head no. cannon right there. Don't yeah, don't look. Crocus up. has a thing.
0: It's not important.
1: <laughs> so, but we've skipped to the scene where she's following Krupp, and Krupp is walking down the street. Oh,
0: I'm sorry. We waving, skipped the most important scene.
1: Waving his hands, seemingly Hello, at random, Mr. Johnson. But really- Sally looking good. It's just a cover for the fact that he's right. magically just stealing food.
0: Right. He's
1: just waving his hands, and his favorite foods are just flying into his pockets.
0: He's like, Francisco, <laughs> that's fun to say. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Chocolate-covered cherries, yeah. bonbons, and- you know, they're just
0: purpley today.
1: Filling up his vest. Wow. Happy as a clam. And this is the most power, outward power that we've seen Krupp. So I, I just love that we've, we're getting all these hints that Krupp is like this immensely powerful person.
0: In the most innocuous ways possible. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I yeah, don't know. I, I just, it. I want to see that on the screen. That's pretty funny.
0: <laughs> you know, we have, we have done a lot of We've gone through a lot of books and talked about their adaptability to the screen. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the fact I still stand by the idea that the Gentleman bastards oh, would yes. be a great television show, and yes. the fact that nobody's done it is ludicrous in my mind. Yep. You know, Stormlight would not portray to the screen well as a live action, but as like an anime. Oh, oh super! Oh my god, it would do really well as an anime. I'm not so sure about Gardens of the Moon. I think. I think this is the medium for it. I don't. I don't know that it would translate as well to to
1: another medium. You know, I could maybe an HBO show.
0: Maybe, yeah.
1: But yeah, a lot of what's beautiful about this book is the language and the prose. And we didn't even talk about the epigraph for this chapter. I'm not going to get sidetracked now. Maybe when we're done, we'll go through because there were. It's just. Really lovely writing. So
0: back to the Phoenix Inn.
1: Back to the Phoenix Inn, yes.
0: A lot of stuff happens in the Phoenix a
1: Inn. A lot of stuff happens in there.
0: So, someone murdered Shirt, a man shouted. He's been knifed. Sorry, faced the bar again, catching the barman's eye and said, fell and Al, please, in a, in a pewter tankard. so she walks in and essentially immediately identifies herself as an outsider. Yeah. Right after they announce that the doorman's dead. Later Crocus sees her. There's blood like she didn't
1: even wipe her dagger off. She didn't
0: even wipe her dagger off. (laughs) And I'm sitting here trying to figure out if this is like intentional or like careless or is it arrogance? Is she like, I don't need to. You know, later there's a point where she says she'd been careless in ordering the city's best. Right. How about clean the blood off your knife? <laughs> yeah. So she sort of acknowledges a little bit of carelessness right. on her part. But it, I think it's really I think it's really telling. You know, it seems like a minor thing, but I think it's really telling. You know, that Cotillion in sorry is so removed mm-hmm. from reality mm-hmm. and so sort of a wash in power and confidence in that power
1: mm-hmm.
0: that it doesn't even cross her mind to you know be she,
1: circumspect. To at be all. circumspect.
0: I mean, she's circumspect when she's out on the road and like following people she mm-hmm. hides in shadows and stuff. But like when she gets in the inn, she's just like, you know. I'm a 17-year-old bitch with blood on my knife and money to spend. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Like,
1: she, like, I mean, it's helpful that nobody liked Chert, apparently. Yeah. Because everyone in the inn knows who did it. You know, she walks in. Erilta and Mies are like, hey, dumbass, don't order the city's best. Yeah. And they hey, kind of cover for her. And they're like, we hated that bastard.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> he was an asshole. Good job. So at
0: least at least the important people in the inn and uh know she did it. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Uh Crocus comes over and he knows she did it because mm-hmm. he looks down and notices the blood on her knife.
0: And we find out later Krupp knows she did oh. it.
1: Krupp definitely knows she did yeah. it. Crocus is given away as the coin bearer when he pulls the coin out. Now, Crocus doesn't know he's the coin bearer, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But he knows that there is something strange with this coin. It spins strangely when uh, it's in the presence of Sari. So things are being revealed. You know, it, it
0: reminds me a little bit of in one of the scenes in Lord of the Ring and Fellowship of the Ring where I think it's Gandalf drops the ring, mm-hmm. and like he's twisting his hand, and it like hangs there, mm-hmm. like a, you know, defying gravity mm-hmm. for as long as possible. And then when it hits the the floor, mm-hmm. it doesn't bounce at all. It just oh, unnaturally, Bilbo, Bilbo or Bilbo the ring when in the Bilbo movie, drops it, yeah. yeah, it just unnaturally hits the floor and stays yeah. there. And this ring, and you know in a in a different manner has that same sort of vibe of oh, like the, coin. Yeah, of the just, coin, you know, hits the table and just spin, yeah. like spins, same rate of speed, mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, doesn't slow down. And sorry uh has a little bit of a of a tantrum mm-hmm. and sort of blasts it across the room like mm-hmm. like get behind me, Satan. Now less people notice what happens there, but again a lot of people notice right what she does.
1: Yes, not very circumspect. No, not
0: really. There's, a, there's only one other thing I wanted to bring up in this section in the Phoenix Inn. This seems to be a running theme through this section. This is Sari's perspective. Crocus had seen the blood. She would have to kill him. Only her frown deepened. She knew she wouldn't. I'm gonna come back to this mm-hmm. later.
1: Yeah. So we move on to Quick Ben and Calum who are planning something dangerous. Their their mission as it unfolds through the rest of this chapter is to it's the an old play from the old empire playbook is to move into a city, contact the assassins guild, offer them a really sweet contract t- to take out all of the city's leadership and Bob's your uncle, now you have the city. Mm-hmm. So their kind of obvious job is to do this. Um, they cannot find anyone from the Assassins Guild, however, so they've got they're on their side mission here, which somehow involves Quick Ben doing some astral projection. Um, so like you do, like you do on a weekend. Oh yeah! yeah. I, <laughs> Next time I go to the store, I'm gonna just sh- turn around projecting. and just say, "If I don't come back, take my body and burn it to ash, scatter the ash to the four winds, and curse my name with all your heart." I love that line. I'll be back. I love that too. I
0: love like, Curse my name with all your heart.
1: Curse my name with all your heart.
0: I can see like this show or this book like opening up and it's a it's a pseudo fantasy, pseudo-cop drama where <laughs> where the guy's standing on a cliff and he's spreading the ashes into the ocean and he's like, damn, your are blackened soul, Quick Ben. And you think, oh my God, he hates this guy. He burned him and threw him in the ocean. But you find out later, they were partners for 17 years.
1: I would watch a Callum and Quick Ben buddy cop adventure all day. I love the relationship between the two of them.
0: Yeah, it's good.
1: I really like it. So, Quickben enters the Warren of Chaos, and he has learned to navigate this Warren. And he has learned that there are these barriers where the Warrens touch, which are kind of doorways. And he's never tried to go through one, but he manages to, and um, we really kind of get a hint of Quickben's power here—that this is something that not every magic user is able to do. So he he passes into the barrier, and I thought it was significant the way that he does it. So he, he approaches the barrier. He was He's trying to attempt entry into a realm where he is not welcome. And he says quietly, I am direction. I am the power of will in a place that respects this and only this. I am the Warren's touch. To chaos, nothing is immune. Nowhere is immune. Only I shall pass. So, So he does this. He performs this feat by asserting his identity. And we saw this Mm. when, uh, we didn't really talk about it, but when Cotillion was struggling with Riga, he overcame her by asserting his identity, Mm. by repeating who he was. And I think this is one of the book's more subtle messages, is the the power in knowing who you are, Mm. and intentionally being who you are. Um, you, we see this in like Surly taking a new name and becoming Lazine Mm -hmm. and Lorne when Lorne, you know, becomes the adjunct, you know, capital T, capital A. So I just think that that's like, that's an important moment in how you have power in this universe in knowing who you are.
0: It's also sort of an aspirational statement as well, because it's not, it's not, because that is not who Quick Ben always was, and that is not who Lacine always was. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's it's not only a statement of yourself and knowing yourself, but it's also an assertion of where you're going.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, the the idea of intentionally choosing your identity, yeah, is mm-hmm. really important. So, um, the, the wrapping up kind of at the Phoenix Inn, I, I just. <laughs> I just had to chuckle at the whole, like, well, Chert's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Who's got the next round? Like, yeah. Like, nobody is mourning Chert. No. Krupp
0: uh, is, is like, could, let's just, I'm trying to eat. <laughs> Don't got time for your bullshit.
1: And so the gang is, you know, they they're reeling from Chert's death. Uh <laughs> <laughs> not not really. And they just dis- they're discussing the rumor that Darugistan is allied with Moonspawn. And they're talking about who lives there. And call in a kind of a drunken outburst says five black dragons. Mm-hmm. And that segs us into the next chapter.
0: Break out your chapter 12 stack. <sighs> <laughs> flip through all your chapter 12 pages.
1: In chapter 12, Krupp goes to Mamo's house to try and uncover the mystery of Call's Five Black Dragons comment. The dragons refer to the and D sorcerers who live in Moonspawn. Krupp also visits with Baruch, who sends him and the crew into the Gadrobi Hills to watch for agents of the Empire who are coming to dig up a Jagu tyrant. Quick ben manages to pull one over on Shadow Throne directed by Sari, he and Calum head to the Phoenix Inn to find a local assassin. Ralik is directed to lead Calum into a trap and Crocus climbs the walls of the Darl estate a second time. Mm. So, less this is, chapter is really sets us up for the the major happenings of chapter 13. We start off with Krupp doing some research at Mamo's and um he is reading a, a book that is talking about events that happened a long time ago, something, an event called the Calling Down, where the god, where a god was crippled and chained, and then a gathering of powerful beings arrived when this happened. Hood was there, Decembre, who was an agent of Hood, but later escaped from him, and the T-Standee were there. Um, these were the dwellers of darkness in the place before light, black dragons numbering five, plus red-winged Solana. Krupp reads this. He's like, "Okay, so there are five dragons that are associated with Moonspawn. How did Call know about this, or yeah. mm-hmm. what power was speaking through him?"
0: Yeah, that—that that was the line I picked up. Who then had spoken through the old man's wine-stained mouth? Almost as though Krupp, who knows him, would presume that there's no way that the earthly Call could know anything about this. Right. Which of course, you know, we don't know anything about him, so so we don't know, you know. Indeed. I thought that Krupp chastising the books for being so long-winded was <laughs> quite rich.
1: You know, it speaks to Krupp's cleverness as he's so he's reading this list of people who showed up to witness the the God being crippled and chained. Okay. And he thinks Goodness gracious, I'm gonna find my grandmother on this list. Yeah. And uh, then when Mammu comes, and this is someone who of whom we've seen Krupp confide in more than anyone else yeah. mm-hmm. in his life. Mammu comes and was like, Hey, so what are you looking for anyway? Krupp says, Oh, I was just hoping I would find a mention of my grandmother. <laughs> you know, his he's just a master manipulator. Krupp is then summoned to Baruch. Baruch is meeting with Crone, and they kind of debrief each other.
0: Before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the conversation with Mamo. Uh, is it Mamo or Mamet? Mamat.
1: Mamat. Weigh in, Mamot. podcast listeners, any listeners to the audiobooks. We're just going to just call him Ma- I'm going to go with Mamo. All right. It sounds I'll- less like a woodland creature. I'll ride. I'll ride with you. All right. Mamo. I'll ride with you.
0: I mean, it's the Jagu. Silent T is established.
1: At least in my...
0: <laughs> I like that so much better than the jagut or jagoot or what, you know. The Jagat. Jagat. like
1: Jagut. I'm going with Jagu.
0: I'm going with Jagu too. Okay. For, for other reasons later as well that'll become apparent. So Memo says, is Marilio well? Krupp smiled. The net about the lad remains intact. For one, Rolik Nam has taken the responsibility seriously indeed. Mayhaps he sees something of his own lost youth in Crocus. So they were talking about Crocus and, you know, protecting Crocus. Right. And then Mamo says, is Marilio well? To which Krupp responds, the net about the lad remains intact. Are they talking about Marilio or Crocus? It sounds like they're talking about Crocus.
1: I think they're talking about Crocus. I think that um, what we're, what we learn in this exchange is that Memo has asked Krupp to look out for him. And Krupp has sort of built this friend group Mm -hmm. around him. Memo is asking about Murillo as a way of being like, so how's the-
0: How's the team?
1: How's the gang? Exactly. How's the team? Yeah, yeah. Crocus is acting a little weird. All of a sudden he wants to go back to school. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Yeah. And Krupp says, everyone's good. The net is intact. He's as protected as I can make him.
0: And this is also where we find out that Krupp was fully aware of what was going on with Sari. He says, for the coin did indeed turn its face upon her, if only for a moment. So he was, you know, not that we're shocked in any way, just sort of confirms right. that he's fully aware right. of what's going on around him. So now we go to the meeting with Baruch and Crone,
1: And I don't have a whole lot of notes in this. They're just kind of informing each other. I have a little of bit. What has mm-hmm. happened? Crone uh, tells Baruch about Hairlock. Baruch tells her about the Jagu Tyrant. What did you pick up in this section?
0: So it sort of begins with Baruch talking, and he says, You know, they're talking about the Jagu Tyrant, and nobody can find the barrow. And it says, Baruch looked up his expression lined with worry. I know of one man here in Darujistan who has gathered all the available knowledge concerning this burial place. I must confer with him. And we're to presume that is Momo mm-hmm. whom he right. summons, or or dispatches rather, uh, to go do some work for him. Right. Baruch is not my favorite character. Mm. We kind of only see him in a in a position where he's sort of barking Krupp around and he's having right. interactions, you know, with people. But it's not it's not that I dislike the character, but I just it's just sort of neutral. However, his standing up to Crone and Anamander Rake mm-hmm. is starting to make me like him more.
1: Yes, and I have something to point out when we get to the, yeah, the, the conversation later, yep. he has with Anamander.
0: Later in this section, I started to get very confused with all the the summon demons that just start popping up. Right. Right. And so I really had to go back and sort of unpack some of this stuff. Like,
1: oh, there's demons now. Uh, Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, So the first of them is one of the ones that he mentions here. Uh, Less than half an hour ago, he'd conjured a demon. It was not an ambitious conjuring. He needed a spy, not a killer. So that's one of the demons that we see a a little bit later. Yes. But I just, I found I had to really go back and piece that together because it get, it can get confusing if you're not yes. not carefully following who's responsible for what demons and right. where they came from and whose side they're on. Right. It gets pretty sticky.
1: It does. And that's what we're here for, gentle listeners. To unstick.
0: <laughs> to clean up your, no, you clean up your own stickiness.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. So um, we, we move on to Quick Ben in the realm of shadow. It's true. So he calls out to Shadow Throne, yo, Shadow Throne, just reaching out, what's up? He's he's immediately greeted by the Hounds of Shadow, mm-hmm. very menacing creatures. He knows all of their names and what they look like, which earns him a little bit of leeway and earns him an escort into Shadow Throne's hall.
0: Mm. And how does he know that Shadow Throne and the Hounds won't just eat him and kill him on the spot?
1: Does not
0: because now he does. He says because Shadow Throne loves a deal.
1: That's right. So he comes up and says, "I got a deal for you." He
0: loves to make deals. So I've got a I've got a a statement about that. Okay. It says Cotillion went down to Rujistan. She was looking for Adjunct Lorne. She was sneaking around all over town, listening to the spinning coin. When she came upon a sleepy inn and the doorman, he got got. Cotillion looked around and thought. Seems like my spot. You probably didn't even know it, but I'm not some little girl. I'll take a stand against the Empire's plan to steal this shiny pearl. Whiskey Jack has his soldiers, but Cotillion needs no friend. I stole a child in which I hide. I'm thirsty for revenge. Sorry, sharpen up your blades, the flames are burning blue. Lorn than the Talana mass, stealing from the jagoo. And if you lose, the empire will dig its filthy hole. But if you win, you'll steal the empress' soul. <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> That's what I did while I was waiting for you to come down and podcast. Oh, I my God.
1: <laughs> I will be tardy more often. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. I was
0: like, Shadow Throne loves a deal. Who else loves it?
1: <laughs> that was amazing and also a very intriguing parallel. Right? Yes. I love that.
0: Well, I, I love the concept of of like the the evil, like Powerful creature, but who is still bound by some Mm -hmm. sort of concept around laws and rules and deals and like Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's it's always sort of perplexing because I don't know it casts you into sort of a different space. I think nowadays you would think, obviously, none of this is real, right? Mm -hmm. But you you know, I think we would think if if all of a sudden we were walking down the the street and a devil was standing on a hickory stump and saying, Mm -hmm. "I'll I'll." Play a fiddle mm-hmm. ballad with you for your soul. We would just expect him to steal it.
2: <laughs> Why?
0: Why? Why would you bother? It's such a weird concept to me.
1: Yeah, but it's it's kind of the cornerstone of this this universe. It's that the
0: cornerstone of so much, like myth and mythology, right? And so, That's so interesting. I, I
1: wonder if it's like a way of like we make stories where we have power. You know, we have these things that we're afraid of, hood representing death and, you know, death and shadows and all of these things, but there are avenues where we can control them. And that is what some of our most foundational myths are about. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's about people being able to control the things we're afraid of.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: Very good observation. I love that. So Quickbun offers Shadow Throne a deal um his li- so he he reveals that he was once an acolyte in Shadow Throne's service mm-hmm. and that you know if you enter Shadow Throne's service and then leave that's it you're you're marked for death and he says if you remove that death mark from me i will give you hairlock who is the person who attacked one of his hounds, mm-hmm. who would have destroyed his soul if possible. I think one of the most important things to understand about the Malazan universe is that there are fates worse than death.
2: Yeah. Death mm-hmm.
1: is, you know, it's pretty much accepted that everyone knows there's an afterlife. You're going to go through Hood's Gate. There's something else. But there are fates worse than death.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when Paran kind of mortal almost mortally wounded Gear was actually saving him from one of those fates. Shadow Throne is like, "Mwahaha, you're intriguing to me. I will accept your deal." And then Quick Ben's like, "No takes backies." Yeah. I'm actually your high priest a lot. No, you son, son of a bitch. Suckers! <laughs> Darn. That's That's very accurate and That's exactly what happened. It's exactly how it went down. HBO
0: doesn't need <laughs> to put on a show. We just gave you what happened. So I had a, a few thoughts in that. One, how many acolytes leave his service that he can't remember them? <laughs> like must happen Left all the time. Right. I mean, service who, to Shadow
1: Throne must suck.
0: I mean, you can't you can't find good help these days. <laughs> <laughs> so so initially I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, Quick Ben used to be a high priest of House Shadow. Okay, file that away. No, no big deal. Uh, then I start thinking about it more, and I'm like, "Wait a minute wasn't wasn't the Warren of Shadow like a dead Warren until like a few years ago?" And I would have to presume that he didn't become an acolyte, become a high priest, and then disband and become a member of the Bridgeburners all in the last seven years or nine years since the since the Emperor was dead. So this either means that Quick Men is incredibly old like, a thousand years old, where the Shadow Worn was active before the Emperor died.
1: Or, it all did happen in the last few years, and Quick Ben was one of... So, one thing we know is that the only way that the Ascendants have any power in the mortal realm is through their priests. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, and the Bridgeburners were kind of the old Emperor's most loyal, most trusted soldiers, was Quick Bend. When Kellenved became an ascendant, was QuickBen instrumental in that, in helping him gain the power over the mortal realm? We just don't know at this point. What's yeah, the, been revealed mm-hmm. to us is that QuickBen, his name is actually uh, Ben Adeyafon Dalat. Mm-hmm. He was a high priest of Shadow Throne. He turned away and burned his vestments because he realized that he was allowing Shadow Throne to have power in the mortal realm. He didn't want to do that anymore. And as such, he was then marked for death.
0: Yeah, so so the other the other thing that makes me think of is was Kellen Ved's whole like taking, you know, taking the Empire was like all of that really just like the vehicle for him becoming an ascendant? Like the whole forming of the empire and and you know taking over, you know, the world, was it all just about him becoming an Ascendant. That was his only real sort of purpose behind it. We don't know. We don't know. We just, don't know. Just I would
1: say to yeah. that, though, that at this point, he seems pretty pissed that he lost the Empire. True, That's He's kind point. of got a grudge yeah. against Lazine. It's not like, he doesn't act like someone who has reached his end goal Yeah. at this point.
0: Also, Quick Ben really should probably come up with a better name if he's trying to hide. I mean... So, like, so like that would mean... <laughs> Be me walking in and being like, I am your I am your old high priest, Chad Dukes, but people now call me Sloppy Chad. <laughs> You'll never find sloppy Chad.
1: Oh my God, it's so true. That's right. hilarious.
0: <laughs> I mean, if this quarantine has done nothing, it has put I mean I have strived and dug to shape my body into the perfect podcasting shape, which is, I think, oblong.
1: <laughs> That's my husband you're talking about. I am. I Watch am, it.
0: I am built for radio.
1: Watch it. So Quick Ben makes it back to Calum and is like, we did it. We Yay. escaped death again. And like Columbus like great,
0: all I had to do was stand here.
1: <laughs> and right as they're talking about how awesome it is to uh deny power to the ascendants and wouldn't it be great if those jerks were just gone? Yeah. Sorry shows up in the doorway. What are you guys
0: talking about?
1: You were saying? Yeah. Excuse me. Right. So Sorry shows up and is hella creepy per mm mm-hmm. Um And they realize at this point, finally, that, oh, yeah, she is a pawn of the rope, but she tells them where they can find one of the assassins, you know, so back on to the original mission to find an assassin and hire the guild to take out the city's leaders. So,
0: so I think there is also some sort of double layered stuff going on with this interaction with Sari as well, because... Or I'm misunderstanding because I definitely am getting like Kellenved, Shadow Throne, Dancer, mm-hmm. Cotillion, Amanus. Like I, I definitely could be conflating some of these personalities. Mm-hmm. But isn't the Rope Cotillion also Shadow Throne? No. Ah. So okay. all right, okay.
1: Cotillion Amanus is Shadow Throne.
0: Okay. Cotillion
1: Cotillion is Shadow Throne's assassin. also called The Rope.
0: Gotcha, okay. So Sari is not the former emperor. Correct. Sari is his assassin. Now, I forget whether that was the first sword or dancer, Right. whoever it was, because I get those guys confused. Um, But okay, all right. So they must not be in super, super, like they're not like sharing notes real time. No, because no. Be, Because she doesn't know what just happened. Right. But I'm assuming at some point, somehow, those two are going to check in with each other. I don't know. I don't know how the cell phone signal strength is in the Warrens of Shadow. Right. Um. But if that happens, then I guess what I'm getting at is there's a potential for Sorry to be able to out Quick Ben in terms of who he is.
1: Right, however, uh, it seems like the uh, Shadow Throne and all of his agents are also bound by the deal he made True. to that quick Ben now cannot be killed, he is out of reach yet again. So can we talk for a minute about Krupp and Baruch's interaction? Mm-hmm. So Krupp comes in, he's been summoned by Baruch and tells him that he has a message personally Delivered to him by an agent of the eel. Mm -hmm. And Baruch is like, ah, that eel even knows that Krupp is one of my agents.
0: I know, right?
1: So Krupp says, uh, of course, the message is, look to the streets to find those you seek. That and no more. Delivered to Krupp by the smallest child he'd ever seen. He stopped and shook his head. No, such exaggeration would never do, not with Baruch's mood as foul as it appeared to be. A small child in any case. You're smiling knowingly. What are you what are you thinking there?
0: Well, I mean it se- I mean it seems like Krupp in his inner dialogue has cuz we've been following Krupp around. Right. No small child has come up and give him Correct. give him any mess. It doesn't mean it couldn't have happened some right. point off screen, but the way he is sort of massaging the lie mm-hmm. in his head should indicate to us that it sounds like he is the eel.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which is one of my predictions,
1: but... Oh, okay. Sorry. But
0: um, but it... I don't even know if you can call it a prediction. A
1: premature predictionation. Whoa. <laughs> oh, sorry. Where were we? I, I, I need a minute. <laughs> so Baruch sends Krupp and the gang out to observe the Gadrobi Hills, Um and uh, he's like, look for a foreign work party digging. And Krupp says, as in road repairs? Baruch is like, no, not road repairs. He, Idiot.
0: He tries like three times as in like, I, as in outside your window? As
1: in hello?
0: As in that guy? <laughs> Doesn't he look a little suspicious?
1: <laughs> Baruch does not get it.
0: No. <laughs> so uh, the, other, the other thing I noted in this conversation is, you know, when he says to get everybody, you know, out of town, Krupp says, Rollick appears temporarily indisposed, but with luck, he shall be available. Baruch says, get him if you can. The coin bearer's influence, or excuse me, if the coin bearer's influence turns against us, the assassin is charged with killing the boy. Does he understand this? We've discussed it, Krupp said. I feel like they haven't.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's hard to say.
0: It's hard to say
1: it seems to not going to let that boy get killed though. Right. Like Mm
0: -hmm. the only way I can imagine him killing crocus is if crocus somehow attacked him Mm -hmm. while possessed by some great, like Mm -hmm. short of that, he's not, he's not going to let anything harm that, that kid.
1: Yeah. Agreed. So the last kind of interactions we have are the interactions where, uh, Where we're setting up for the big battle that happens in the next
2: Mm -hmm.
1: chapter. Caleb and Quick Ben they head to the Phoenix Inn. Rallik heads there to kind of be the bait to draw them into a trap. Uh, Rallik is pretty is pretty ambivalent about his role in all of this. Mm -hmm. He thinks it's stupid. He doesn't particularly want to do it, but his clan leader Ocelot uh, (laughs) is like, sorry.
0: You think ocelot. I'm sorry. It's every time time I clan leader ocelot, I just chuckle. I don't know why. I just do.
1: I mean, it does sound like a cleaning product.
0: It sounds like somebody who wants really hard to be involved in like black ops, but doesn't know anything about it. (laughs) Clan. Clan leader ocelot. (laughs) Go out and load the M80s. Oh, you don't. Oh, you don't load M-80s? Well, whatever. (laughs) You know what to do. Uh, I'm clan leader Ocelot. I never open my eyes all the way. (laughs) It's Uh. very bright in here.
1: (laughs) Uh. Moving on to chapter 13. In this chapter, some shit goes down. That's it. That's a summary.
0: No, I think that's fair.
1: <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Fair. Some shit goes down. Ralic and the local assassins set a trap for Calum, who turns around and has an even better trap set for them. Both sides get hammered by the t who, who were the actual track. assassins <laughs> behind all of this conflict to begin with. Our main characters only survive thanks to the effort of a demon with the unlikely name of Pearl... Big Daddy Anamander steps in to finish the fight, and the main combatants retreat to their corners. Crocus returns to Chally Starl's room and returns her treasure, and Sari decides that she's going to have to kill him. That's it. That's the summary.
0: It's a hell of a summary. (laughs) I'll beat your trap with a better trap. You're all in my trap!
1: (laughs) It's a trap! (laughs) So... Quick Ben and Calum aren't actually setting a trap because uh, intentionally they're kind of covering their bases. They legitimately think that they are going to just peaceably, uh, you know, approach this clan, this guild, and uh, things are going to go the way they always have gone. They don't realize that Animander Rake has set things in motion to cause the guild to not trust them and think that they're going to be attacked.
0: They don't know about how we opened in Dagestan with T stand flying around and killing motherfuckers left right. and right.
1: Oh, yeah. quick Ben can fly now. We find oh, out. oh apparently yeah 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 totally bad donkey.
0: So I-, I liked how they're sort of setting this up and they're you know they're walking up and they're putting on all their. Their yeah. combat gear, which you know was very little because they're an mm-hmm. assassin and a mage, right. right? You know they're snapping on their
2: mm-hmm. belts
0: and tightening everything up, and they're like, "I can't wait till this is over. No more stupid assignments and mm-hmm. blah blah blah. No more of this and no more that." And then Quickben says, "No more disguising spells." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Wait a minute. Is Quickben just been glamored this whole time?"
1: Oh, I think so. I, like, I think yeah. You know, Shadow Throne yelling at him. You shapeshifter,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, "Son of a, he's bitch.
1: walking around like Sloppy Chad, like looks exactly the same."
0: <laughs> I'm Sloppy Chad, and I don't look any different. <laughs> if anything, I'm slightly messier than I was before. So yeah, I, you know, he's. We don't know what Quick Ben really looks like. We don't. He it sounds like he glamored himself to fit in with the rest of the folk from the Seven Cities. From that campaign.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, you know, there's layers upon layers with this character. We really don't know a whole lot about him. Um, so, yeah, both sides are kind of preparing themselves. Ralik and Ocelot are there, and uh, he apparently, the Vorkan, who is the head of the Assassin's Guild, is a high mage. And Vorkan has equipped all of her assassins with kind of magical things, uh, ability to detect magic, ability to repel magic. Ralic does not go for any of that stuff.
0: Yeah, it wasn't until I was taking notes that I pieced all that together, those right. the last few sentences you said. Because like, oh, if you'd get on with us, and I was like, does that mean show up more at the meetings? Does that mean participate more in brainstorming sessions? Mm-hmm. What are they getting Rolic- on Rallik Nam about? And then- we figure out what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And then if Rolik Nam is so opposed to magery, what's he gonna do when he finds out that Krupp is a mage? The other thing that happens here is we are briefly in the head of the demon that mm-hmm. that Baruch summoned. Mm-hmm. And you know the demon is flying around. He's like, oh, I think I found the, oh! <laughs> <And> he's like <laughs> instantly attacked from behind uh-huh. by what I assume was Anamander Rake.
1: Or one of the t standee, Or
0: one of the t standy mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and it's just sort of like them epically falling through the sky, punching mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. That's pretty much how that ends. <laughs> yeah. But a- again, you know, I'm like, where are these demons? Because we have Pearl who shows up later. Mm-hmm. So it, it gets, it can get a little, it's a messy bowl of spaghetti.
1: Yeah, so we'll kind of break down the assassin battle. We've got these two sides who are kind of both spying out each other the, uh, the guild doesn't realize that Quick Ben is there because he's more badass than they are. Um, but all of a sudden, then both sides just start getting hammered by the T-Standee, who are the mm-hmm. ones who started all of this to begin with. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, even Quick Ben, as powerful as he is, really kind of gets creamed. We get to see uh, how badass Caleb is here at this point. Um, he There's a scene where he gets, you know, he's being attacked. He's kind of dodging these crossbow quarrels. He falls back over the edge, but he's really just holding on with one hand. And when the other assassin comes up, he just headlocks him, you know, crushes his sternum. I mean, it is just... So he takes out two of these guys, but pretty much it's like things are not going well for either side Mm -hmm. until Quick Ben releases what he's got in a bottle is one of Taishren's demons. Now, we've known that Taishren bottles up demons because that is what we saw in the Siege of Pale. Uh, Tayshren's demons were responsible for killing Nightchill. Mm-hmm. Quick Quickben's just got one in his pocket. So uh, this is a super powerful demon that should be able to take out pretty much anyone or anything.
0: It's also an indictment of Taishren's, uh inventory skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, we saw him. Mean, he's just not not his administration is not. His no,
0: strength. it must not be. we have already
1: established this. That's
0: that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, you think you be, you'd be like Norbert, Oscar, <laughs> Ruthberg. Where's wasn't there somebody between O and o? <laughs> my demon name Pearl?
1: <laughs> it's very unlikely. <laughs> I, I, I love it.
0: Pearl says to to Quick Ben, you're supposed to be dead. Your name is so marked on the scrolls of those high mages Mm -hmm. who fell to the empire in the seven cities. So another Mm -hmm. unfolding of Quick Ben sort of mystery. Mm -hmm. Marked for death, Quick Ben and Kalam coming to you.
1: (laughs) Yes, sign me up. But when Pearl turns, Quick Ben, get in this office right now. (laughs) (laughs) I got the mayor on my back. (laughs)
0: You going out releasing demons all over town? <laughs> Do you want the job done, Captain? <laughs> or you want to sit here and measure dicks? <laughs> I don't know. Like,
1: someone like. make it. Love it.
0: Calem's in the back, just chewing on a toothpick, <laughs> looking looking angry for no reason.
1: <laughs> oh, someone make that happen. <laughs> But so when Pearl gets released and then, you know, she's like, all right, I got to kill all these bitches. Then, I, then what? You know, then I go back to Tayshren and then she turns around and sees who she's up against. Yeah. And that just, again, is that we've seen this before. Here's this powerful being. Oh, wait, an even more powerful being. Mm-hmm. She turns around and sees these T-Standee and she's like, oh, shit. Yeah. And then she sees, she says, do you see who's coming behind them? Yeah. And it's Aunt Amanda Rake and she's like, I'm going to die. And Quick Ben's like, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So it all goes down. Ralik is saved by his really good armor. One of the T-Standy is killed. Everybody else kind of retreats. Ralik just goes back to the inn, which for me was a little bit like, (laughs) you just go back to the inn where you always are. Like, I guess there's just that assumption that nobody knows where you hang out all the time. I
0: guess so. Yeah.
1: But I, I really like this internal monologue that he has as he's heading back to the inn. And he, he's thinking about his life's path. And he, he thinks that he has no option. And he's thinking about the fact that he's one day, how much he doesn't like Ocelot, but that one day that's going to be his job as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but he thinks he has no option. Once he thought as he approached the block of the Phoenix Inn long ago, there had been choices he could have made that would have set him on a different path but those days were dead and the future held only nights, a stretch of darkness that led to the internal dark. He would meet Vorkan eventually. He would swear his life to the guildmaster, and that would be that, the closing of the final door and his sense of outrage at the injustices around him, the corruption of the world would wither in the unlit tunnels beneath the Darujistan and the exactness of the methods of assassination his final victim would be himself. Mm. I just felt this so hard. Like I feel like Getting older overall has been, I, I think it's a magical experience, you know, for the most part, you just getting, I don't know, I'm going to go way on a tangent here, but getting older <laughs> is like, just like letting go of, of bullshit, you know, but this feeling and, and Steven Erickson just really encapsulates it in this bit of prose, that feeling of like, you're also letting go of the possibilities for your future. Like, yeah. you're letting go of like, you know what? I'm not ever gonna be an astronaut. No, mm-hmm. you know I'm probably not ever gonna do that. You know, and it's just it's such a poignant human experience. I think, and he just—I don't know. This this par that paragraph just hit me right in the heartstrings. I don't have anything oh, more to Rolick say
0: about Nom, that. Oh, Rollick Nam, you lovable scamp! <laughs> you <laughs> play me like a harp.
1: So, as far as morally conscious rogues go, how do we rate Rollick Nam? Oh, he's up there. He's up there. He's up there, right? He's you know. He's not, he's not up there with Locke for me, but.
0: I mean, we've only seen him uh, assassinate people who were fucking other people's wives. So <laughs> I guess they had it coming. I mean, <laughs> so let's talk about Crocus going to see the D'Arl maid with Sari in tow.
1: So Crocus breaks back in to the D'Arl mansion. Like you do. Like you do. And returns all of her jewels. And it's it's a it's a wonderful scene because as he's replacing the things, she sits up and goes, I like that jar on the left, if you don't mind.
0: She is quite sassy.
1: She's very sassy. You can tell she's enjoying this element of danger.
0: So sorry is following him, trying to figure out what's what's going on with him, when she also gets the the emanations of power echoing from the assassin fight. And she's trying to make a decision about whether or not to bail on Crocus to go find out what's going on with this big, huge magical explosion. When all of a sudden a light turns on in the room and she's like, Nope, Nope, Nope. Got to Got to sit this one out. Got to, got to hang in tight to see what's going on with the with the coin bear. And Um, then she
1: proceeds to way overthink things. Way
0: overthink things. But this is the first line that I noted. She knew the boy would have to die. Mm -hmm. So this is another, like, earlier she's like, he's gonna have to die, but she knew she wouldn't kill him. Mm -hmm. Now she's like, he's gonna have to
2: die. Mm -hmm.
0: And then the other thing I noted was, as Sorry's sort of out there waiting, she's talking about all the people that she had to kill to get here. Mm-hmm. You know? And she's like, others had to be removed as well, but only as necessary. hmm You know, as though her killing spree is tempered. She's not killing people needlessly.
1: Yeah, it's not just for fun.
0: It's not for fun, right? And then four paragraphs later, but there had only been one guard patrolling the ground. She'd killed him effortlessly. Just, <laughs> 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 like, her blase perception about human life mm-hmm. but also justifying it as though I only I only killed the people that absolutely only 40 people that I 47 people that I absolutely <laughs> had to including this one guard that by the way, Crocus managed to sneak past with no problem
1: right <laughs> right. And that is not sorry strength, okay?
0: No, it's, it's absolutely dispatching people without any remorse uh-huh. and then completely excusing it in her mind.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, so he creeps in and then before he, you know, before she wakes up, he says, uh, he listened to her soft, regular breathing behind him like the breath of a dragon. And I thought, what have you ever described somebody that you are infatuated with in those terms?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's talk about this for a minute because the girl wakes up and uh, you know, okay, we're going to introduce ourselves to this girl that we've uh, just planned to overturn our entire lifestyle for, and he starts off real strong by making fun of her name.
0: Yeah, I no. like,
1: Of course right she would be back.
0: named something some dumb girl name for a girl.
1: <laughs>
0: like, you got a dumb girl name. I'm, I I got to go. <laughs>
1: It's just like, we are toxic from the get-go here, Crocus. I'm sorry. (laughs) And Chalice is into it. Oh, yeah. She's She's like, like, "Mm -hmm." "Hmm, You're not like the other boys. (laughs) You're mean to me. You threaten to harm me. (laughs) I'm so into it.
0: You're not like the other boys. Stuck outside the estate because my father won't let them in.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: You're the only boy I've gotten to see within ten feet of.
1: They're all nice to me. That's boring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I only get to see them at balls, you know. And we find out later who, like, who is the DR you know, the D'Arl maiden or the youngest girl, whatever her whatever nomenclature, you know, we're going by. Chalice. You know what is her role in this other than just being somebody for Crocus to fawn over, mm-hmm. you know, and to motivate him, right? Um, but then we find out later that Councilman D'Arl mm-hmm. is the leader of the Opposition Determinor. Mm-hmm. So he's yeah. like the chief war hawk yep. on the council. Right. So this does play into the broader scheme.
1: But not to the extent that sorry imagines that it has no correct you know yeah, she's yeah, thinking crocus yeah. is in there scheming and manipulating this some is kind a of secret rendezvous with the daughter but motivation yeah, but he just saw a pair of tits that exactly was it. that's Done. all that's going on here end of the story
0: <laughs> it's no more complicated than that but she's envisioned that like you know the councilman de Arles has sneaked into the maidens quarters in there mm. quietly under the you know with a, a, a Blanket around a lamp. Mm-hmm. they I got a map and they're sketching out plans.
1: But, you know, it's intriguing because it kind of calls back to when you were talking about Cotillion's removal from humanity mm-hmm. and that really then can't see that really this is just as simple as a teenage boy sneaking into the room of a teenage girl because she's hot. Like that's, yeah, that's you know, <laughs> that's it. That doesn't even occur. You know, that simplest an- answer does not even occur to Cotillion. No. You know?
0: Well, w- this is not. I mean, not, not only just in this section, but we see several times where Cotillion and Amanus really just don't, they're super powerful, but mm-hmm. they have—they just have a real warped mm-hmm. sense of the reality and uh, the impact of what they do from the very beginning in Itco Khan when they're like, no one will ever suspect our plan if we only kill 400 people. Right. <laughs> they'll never know we were here.
1: <laughs> yeah, two paragraphs later, the adjunct is like, yep, they possessed the body of a Fisher girl. Yeah. We gotta go find her. <laughs> yeah,
0: right, exactly. I, I, I like that, you know, that this sort of, because, you know, sorry slash uh, Cotillion, you know, made out to be you know, very much an uber-powerful, you know, creature that, you know, Kalam and Quick Ben, who, you know, are, like, terrified mm-hmm. of her. But there are sort of mistakes there. But even the mistakes you have to really read in the subtext, it's not apparent. You know, like, Erickson isn't telling you he he doesn't have a good sense of humanity. He's mm-hmm. showing you in very subtle ways.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I like that. I like it, too.
0: Oh, creeping Crocus.
1: <laughs> so as we kind of talked about this briefly, but let's talk more about the reaction that Sari and others had when the Empire's demon was killed by, as we now know, it, it was animator Rake. Uh, and everyone with any kind of magical acumen at all in the city is just like, it's like being oh. punched in the gut. They feel yeah. it on a physical, like a visceral level hmm. that something outside of nature has happened. And we'll get more into that later, I guess, when we talk about Baruch and Anamander Rake when they kind of debrief about the battle. But mm-hmm. but it's really significant event that happens. Uh, but Sari does decide she's going to wait longer to kill Crocus. She's going to wait until everybody leaves the city, as they're all planning to do.
0: Yeah, her th- my third line there is that now she knew she would kill him. Mm-hmm. But later... But later. But she, like, it's just interesting to watch her reaction to Crocus. To be mm-hmm. like, she knew she would kill him, but um, but probably not. Mm-hmm. And then she just every interaction with him, she keeps changing her mind.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, everybody heads back to their separate quarters. Quick, Ben and Caleb make it back to Whiskey Jack and the others. Uh, Caleb is wounded, but not terribly badly. Baruch is uh, after also sensing the demon's death and he senses the demon's death and it's a wrongness in the universe, a wrongness that brings the impression of darkness, chains, wooden wheels, and imprisoned souls.
0: So it wasn't so much, I mean, it is that he killed this very powerful demon, but it's also like we've seen before, it's the way in which he killed this demon
1: well right and and then we learn in the next by the end of the chapter we learn and it, it highlights again what we know about this world that there are fates worse than death mm-hmm. and we know that most of the time when a demon is attacked or battles or even one of the hounds you know they get to us it's very D. like you get to a certain point you get down to zero but then you've got your death saving throws yeah yeah. <laughs> you know uh
0: you teleport away and you know
1: animate with animander rake there is no death-saving throw. You mm-hmm. know, he gets you, you're done. Um, and that is something that's very unusual in this universe. So usually when demons come out, they get beaten down, and then they, f- they can flee to another mm-hmm. dimension. And that's not what happened here. Um, so, But Ra- Animator Rake shows up. He's got Baruch's spy demon by the scruff of its neck. <laughs> Does this belong to you?
0: <laughs> this was shitting in my yard. <laughs> yeah.
1: And he finally explains to Baruch that he's the one who started the assassins' war.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he's kind of like, duh, this is the oldest trick in the book. I knew they were going to do this. I had to take out your guild. Baruch is like, what the fuck? The assassins are a vital part of the city's government. What are you doing, you idiot?
0: Did you know we're ruled by
1: assassins? Uh, you know, Animander right. Rake is like, most people do not talk to me in this manner. <laughs> and calling back to what you kind of brought up before, that Baruch stands up to Animander. And Baruch says to him, there are many paths to ascendancy. So this is a world where you've got many levels of deities, powerful beings, and there, it's kind of an equal opportunity organization. So you can become an ascendant, kind of anyone can become an ascendant by becoming powerful enough. We don't really know the mechanics of that, mm-hmm. but that's what's being made more and more obvious to us.
0: It seems like, because I, I you know, wrote that section down as well. They were talking about Vorkan, and this is where we find out that right. Vorkan's a high mage, which, you know, to that point I had no no idea. Right. Anamanda Rake is saying, Does she have the power to mm-hmm. to do all of this stuff? And Baruch is saying, I, you know, I don't I don't have an answer to that. Right. And that's when they get into this little tit for tat. Mm-hmm.
1: He, so here's the interaction. I don't want to get too bogged down by it, but I do think it's significant. Mm-hmm. Um, he asks, you know, Rake asks, is, is Vorkan that good? Uh, alchemist says, I don't know. Um, Rake stares hard at Baruch and says, If you were indeed nothing but an alchemist, I might believe you. Baruch's smile was wry. Why would you think me anything but? Now it was Rake's turn to smile. There are a few who would argue with me without flinching i am unused to being addressed as an equal there are many paths to ascendancy some more subtle than others and then Baruch goes on to say Mm -hmm. she's a high mage and uh we all have defenses but against her we probably wouldn't stand a chance yeah so either way it's an intriguing tidbit about power in this realm and you know the path to becoming uh more than a mortal being and the fact that death is very rarely the end mm-hmm. um, unless you get hit by dragnaper dragnaper so we finally get the last pieces slide into place in another dream a dream of crop
0: yeah we open with Krupp's dream we end with crop's dream
1: so a crawl uh, updates crop on tattersail says she's growing fast as is the nature of the soul taken She's being protected by the Rivie people. Can't wait to see what happens there. So I guess that tells
0: us that she, in the present time, is in the Rivie Plains. Yes. And, okay, and so we know that, like, Caladan Brood mm-hmm. um, and some of his lieutenants and Crone mm-hmm. are in that area frequently. Mm-hmm. So I think the last time we saw Harlock, he was in that area, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that, you know, we have some players mm-hmm. in that area. So good chance that we'll encounter her mm-hmm. before the end of this book.
1: So they, they also discuss what happened with the animator rake entering the battle and Krupp talks about, um, you know, this this magical gut punch he received mm-hmm. and then he heard the sound of a great wagon with wheels and chains and enslaved souls. And Krull says, you did hear that. Its name is Dragnapur, and it is a sword. It's
0: like a wagon's a sword?
1: That chains souls to the world that existed before the coming of the light. Mm. So Dragnipur of sort of is like a, I guess a, a portal to this world of chaos. And it, it if you get killed by dragnapur your soul is like sucked into the sword.
0: It's not good. She's
1: so metal.
0: It's super metal.
1: Super metal. dragnapur versus Nightblood, go.
0: I mean, who wins in a fight between them?
1: Who would you rather be stabbed by?
0: Oh God. Um, Anything but that.
1: <laughs> I would rather be stabbed by night blood, because at least then you know you're yeah. just gonna die.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I gotta agree. Uh, yeah. I Gotta agree with that.
1: But what we're left with at the end of chapter 13 is the the absolute certainty that bad shit is gonna happen.
0: You know, we end a lot of these <laughs> a lot of these sections with The certainty that bad shit's going to happen.
1: You're not wrong. You're not wrong.
0: But I do think we're doing a very effective job at setting the table and setting the stakes. Yeah. It's still the first book in a series. There's a lot of world building, you know, and history that's being layered on Mm -hmm. in all these sessions. And, you know, interesting, cool stuff is happening at Mm -hmm. the same time. I'm looking forward to getting sort of deeper into... The plot and what's going to happen with Derujistan, because we—I still feel like there's a lot of like characters out there
2: mm-hmm.
0: that I know are going to be instrumental that we haven't even met yet. Mm-hmm. You know, like Vorkan and you know Councilman Darl. You know, they're going to be important. Never even been on the screen.
1: There's a few more books left.
0: There are for sure. Well, I feel like this book is about what happens in Derujistan.
1: Yes. No, I mean, there's a few more books in this book. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to be in book seven still trying to figure out who's controlling Darujistan.
1: Hopefully not.
0: I hope. I hope.
1: All right, so next time, book five. Book five Mm. is called The Gadrobi Hills. It's going to go down. It's
0: going to get outside of Darujistan. All right. Are you ready to talk about some listener interactions?
1: Yes, I am.
0: All right, so I put our question out there like I do every podcast. Uh, we're going to be recording. Give us your questions. I put it out on Twitter. Uh, and Terry uh, Blade, who is at Terrible Day YY on Twitter, uh, sent us a dancing Mad King George
1: gif. Nice. It's quality. It's quality. Nice.
0: On Facebook, Theo Graham Brown said, "Is Tattersail being born into the past to become Talana Mas or being born into the present? I wasn't sure." I think we kind of talked about... Right. ...that. Yes. I'm fairly sure she's going to show up in the present. Yes. Although it would be super wicked if she, like, was born 300 years ago, 300,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. and then became, like, a a super powerful ascendant, and all of a sudden the present, like, just changed because they went in the past and time
1: traveled. I don't know if we're going to go there.
0: I don't think we're going to go there, but that would be cool.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: He also says, uh, the moment where all the assassins are converging was maybe the first time in a fantasy book where I've seen two sides looking like they'll annihilate, e- annihilate each other, and I'm very interested in both of them. It yes. Was, yeah. In A Song of Ice and Fire, you feel sad about Tyrion and Blackwater, but he's still very much on the bad guy's side. But here, even though Kalam and Quickben are working for the Empire, it was different.
1: Agreed. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the whole theme of... Uh, you know, power and imperialism, but the individuals inside of those structures, you know, still being holding on to their morality, holding on to their personalities, there being no real right side to a, a wartime conflict. I think mm-hmm. that those are all um, really well done, uh, re- expressed really well in this book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get a lot of that in a Song of Ice and Fire. I think it's one of the things I like best about that series. Um, it's oftentimes more the converse side of it though, where mm-hmm. you're like, I don't want any of these guys to win. <laughs> they're, they're all terrible.
1: Uh, Theo also says, do you think Anamander Rake messed up with the assassins? It felt to me like his first play had spooked the guild enough. They were absolutely not going to listen to the empire. The second one seems like it might twist things back for me. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that was a misstep and, um, he might even, be partially acknowledging that in his conversation with Baruch, where he acknowledges that, hey, you're right, I maybe don't know enough about the city to really uh, have made that decision without mm-hmm. consulting anyone. Eric Algeyer says, is it true that if you steal from a noblewoman and then return it, she'll let you see her naked? I'm looking for pointers here. Any advice is welcome. P.S. Chad, please DM me if there's anything you don't want to share in front of Liz. <laughs> I mean, what... You do in your free time is.
0: Um, no, it's true. It's, <laughs> it's completely true.
1: Uh, uh, she
0: will show you her boobs and then they will haul you away to be hanged.
1: <laughs> okay. Matt Hargreaves says, fuck Mary Kill, or as we like to call it on this podcast,
0: Mary, Mary bike, bike, ride. bike Ride Cliff. Cliff. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Amanda Rake, Crocus Young Hand, and Krupp. okay i'm not sure if it's possible to kill or cliff anamander rake
0: right i know
1: so um i am going to have to uh bike ride anamander rake
0: i think yeah i think that's the right choice
1: I'm going to cliff Crocus Younghand. Sorry. You're just the most useless. And I'm going to marry Krupp because I think he's going to keep me in pastries.
0: You know, that's exactly what I would do. (laughs) (laughs) If I were in your shoes, I don't question your decision making in the slightest. (laughs) I think you have your priorities in the right place. So Uh, we ask for any questions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Some people have taken that too literally. (laughs) Luke Morrell says, What is the plot and underlying themes of the 1992 movie Sister Act? <laughs> I don't know. Friendship really? trumps evil. I don't know. I don't, I remember that movie, but I don't really remember anything about it.
1: I, I mean, I, I'd like to know if this is like a, a, a test for coolness yeah. or is it like a well, legitimate request for information. But the plot is that Whoopi Goldberg plays a lounge singer who, um, Witnesses a murder and goes into witness protection and she is placed in a nunnery and charge of the choir, which is terrible. But then through the power of music, she makes them popular and also encourages them to leave the gates of the nunnery and begin to make, you know, enact positive change in the community. They in turn show her that she is a worthwhile person outside of just being able to wear a sparkly dress and sing oldies. And they uh, overcome the bad guys, and I would say the overarching themes are that love trump's evil God
0: and damn. also
1: believing in yourself, which ties nicely into what we've been talking about.
0: I mean in this a- section A plus plus
1: Thank you <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's very impressive, I. Right?
1: Thank you. You married me for a reason.
0: That's true, it's true. <laughs> Gordon Ross says, The most interesting thing about Malazan so far is all the powerful characters were uh, warring with each other, Anamander, Rake, Shadow Throne, are all portrayed as evil, whereas the characters I have sympathy for, Crocus, Tatter, Tattersail, Whiskeyjack, are comparatively smaller players. None of the, quote, good guys uh, are really trying to achieve anything more than staying alive uh, and maybe taking vengeance on Tatra. so... Uh, A little over halfway into book one, what predictions can we make about the entire series? Is there a Jon Snow character who will rise to unexpected leadership as everyone else is killed off? Uh, Which of our many villains is an uber baddie who will be defeated by the climactic end of the final book, chucking of a ring into a volcano? And who will be the Denna, the character who splits the D&D listeners into fierce tribal camps of love and hate? There's a lot of questions to unpack there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, I think Theo and the responses to this thread really highlights the important one. There are people who love Denna.
0: Yes, yes, of course there, there
1: are. are. You know what, there are. It's true. I actually have, I have close friends who have called meow, me and meow. said, stop being mean to Denna. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. Many people love Denna. I'm kidding. Denna's fine. I've come around to Denna. I can't wait to put my, my power access chart up there because this really kind of ties into Mm -hmm. what I found so interesting and what I was talking about earlier about the types of power and that I think that we're going to see some of these um, low power individuals actually be able to affect the outcome of the story in really meaningful and important ways.
0: Well, absolutely, I agree. And I think, you know, one of the things that is sort of unspoken in in your chart there is the idea that a lot of the people who are really power hungry and who are actively pursuing power sort of overachieve on that scale because they are, you know, going out of their way to grab power. And then a lot of the people who, you know, are not actively trying to, to get power for power's sake are actually sitting on, you know, some reserves of legitimate power that they simply aren't expressing all the time. In the case of a crocus, a quick Ben, a tatter sail, you know, and, and we like those those characters, but you know, so I, I think that you know that that chart that you drew is is directly connected to to the question that he, that he's trying to ask. You know, as for a John Snow character who's going to sort of, you know, rise into power when everyone's dead, I I don't. No, it. Mm-hmm. I. It's hard to say. I feel like one of the themes that George R. R. Martin tries to put across all the time is how incredibly, you know, damaging and chaotic these wars were for these mm-hmm. sort of ancient societies that didn't have, yeah, you know, stable, you know, governmental mechanisms, and it's how you mm-hmm. ended up with like, you know, fourteen-year-old kings mm-hmm. over and over again who didn't know anyth- yeah. anything because you just kept killing off. Yeah, everybody yeah. who had any skill or expertise. I don't feel like that's the sort of tale that Erickson's trying to tell.
1: Well, yeah, and the idea that there aren't really good guys or bad guys, or obviously we see Lazine, if we had to pick a bad guy, you mm-hmm. know, she is someone who's, you know. I think Anna Rake's kind of a bad dude. What? Don't you talk about Anna Rake like that.
0: Yeah, he'll come in here with a sword.
1: He will. The walls start cracking. I'm just saying. No, I mean, I I think that, you know, there's the powerful and the less powerful, and then there's the people who are just trying to survive. And I I think that the passage we read where Whiskey Jack was talking about trying to even remember what it was like to just be a person who was building a life. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, when you're just kind of swallowed up into the, you know, this conflict, and that's what it takes away from people, the idea of having your own life and just trying to build build your own future, yeah. um, you know, and just exploring what that's really like for people is just one of the most Im- important messages of this book.
0: I do think if there's a character that I, you know, I see sort of like surviving and becoming uber powerful, you know, from the original cast, I think I'd have to put my money on tatter sale. I, uh, Ann asks, do you guys think you ever would cover his dark materials?
1: like we get asked um stuff like this a lot we always we really don't know uh we fly by the seat of our pants more Take than you would possibly imagine <laughs> <laughs> i t- know i have t- a t- lot t- of t- charts but it's only like it's like a like a like a fishnet just r- trying to hold back a whale of chaos that is our life <laughs> We have no idea what's going to happen next. It
0: one book at a time. <laughs> I, I mean, also the fact that you know our our pace of production has slowed down dramatically. Indeed. You know it. I think when you know when we were putting podcasts out every week, you know we could sort of think in these more ambitious terms we'll do this series, we'll do that series. You know now we're ta- you know we're tackling series at you know a much 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 slower pace. So I think we have to be really really careful, and we've kind of committed ourselves. To a bunch of series that aren't completed yet. right? You know, so when things like Rhythm of War comes out or theoretically uh, the next book in Gentleman Bastards mm-hmm. or the next, you know, or Doors of Stone come out, you know, I think we have a certain obligation to at some point cover them.
1: Right. That being said, we really value input from things that people would like yeah. to hear from us. Um, that is a, a big factor. And the main factor is, you know, we, we pick books we want to read together, we are not doing this for anything other than we enjoy it. And, you know, we're kind of having fun doing it. So that's kind of our main thing is what do we think we'll have fun covering? Um, but we also kind of, this hasn't
0: been profitable from a raw dollars
1: perspective, not at all. (laughs) However,
0: (laughs) um, it also fits into our, um, it fits into our sort of category as well, because it's another book that you've read that I haven't. Yeah, so yeah.
1: so we but we that all that to say keep the suggestions coming. Yeah, agreed. If anything else, it's you know sometimes it's suggestions of things we might want to read. So keep them coming. Um, Eric Alguer says, "I almost forgot to wish happy holidays to all the dookies and duchettes out there." And congratulations for making it to the end of the craptastic year known as 2020. <sighs> Speaking of the holidays, I got to know, do the Duke and Duchess consider Die Hard a Christmas movie? Hold on, we're both going to answer on three. Ooh, okay. One, two, two three. three. Hell no. yes. What?
0: <laughs> it's not a Christmas movie. It is
1: absolutely a Christmas movie. Um. Eric Allgaier goes on to say, if not... If not, do they consider It's a Wonderful Life a Christmas movie? Because I would contend that Die Hard is just It's a Wonderful Life with more gunfights and German terrorists and ventilator shafts and less ear infections. Exactly my point. Exactly.
0: I hope not, because that's <laughs> a terrible point. <laughs> sorry, Eric. It's just not true.
1: Uh, Dab Babalina says, What do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? I want a nap. <laughs> all i want
0: i I want like a three-day nap
1: yes
0: i just want a week off which is which i'm getting the first vacation i've taken yay in 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 over a year year. so yep i'm like i'm (sighs) i'm at the end of my rope (laughs) like (laughs) i just need some time off
1: (laughs) Uh, Theo says uh, Too late probably But how's the puppy doing You are not too late Not
0: too late Shockingly
1: the puppy is fine He is the, the king of the house He is the uh, Yeah that might be a problem though <laughs> I mean It's fine for him <laughs> He's doing amazing
0: <laughs> He's loving life <laughs> The rest he's a of little, us
1: are... He's a little bossy Any yeah. tips For a bossy puppy
0: We would Yeah We'd Be happy to take them <laughs> He, you know what? He sleeps through the night.
1: He does. It's amazing. He does sleep all night.
0: I mean, so, you know, if he's going to be a little bit of a dick, at least he sleeps through the night.
1: I mean, being the king is exhausting. <laughs> he's tired. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. Oh, on that note. All right. Are you ready for predictions? Predict it up. All right. Here we go. So I only have a couple. Number one, I'll start out with. Krupp is the eel. I think that's kind of. Uh-huh. Maybe less of a prediction and more of a
1: Nice catch, though. Hinted no, I, at I don't think that. I would have caught that. Yeah.
0: I think Krupp's Warren is somehow closely aligned with Thier and Tattersail mm-hmm. in some way. Um, because it's opposed to Shadow, or it appears to be. And also because Krupp was sort of the one chosen to be there. Uh, With Tatusha, I know that also plays Mm. into like whatever he's done to make himself impervious to things, but I somehow feel like it's in that light knowledge Mm -hmm. area. Somehow, I I don't know what else to say about that. I think that Sari is not going to kill Crocus, okay? I think that she's gonna get drug out to the Gadrobi Hills. And find Lorne and the Talana Moss out there. Mm -hmm. And I think she's going to get pulled into a conflict with Lorne. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is going to happen. And that Crocus will manage to escape. All right. When Carole talks about look for um, unlikely allies, Mm -hmm. I think he's weirdly talking about Sari. Not that I think Sari is going to purposefully ally herself with somebody who's got the touch of Opon. Right. I don't think it's, they're not going to be buddy-buddy. hmm But I think, you know, her main mission, the reason why Cotillion and Amanus took over uh, Sari to begin with mm-hmm. was to get vengeance on the Empress. Mm-hmm. You know, and this whole upon thing is just sort of a, Mm -hmm. a red herring to dispatch with and get out of the way. Yeah. So when presented with an opportunity to hurt the Empress, Mm -hmm. I think Crocus Younghand is going to take a back seat. Yeah. So that's my, those are my predictions.
1: Good predictions. All right, where can they find us?
0: They can find us on uh, they can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast, D is in David and as in Nancy Podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash the DND group and all the social medias simply by searching for the Duke and Duchess Podcast. We did change our name on yeah. uh on iTunes to the Duke and Duchess Book Club. There you go. Because as I mentioned, the word podcast is in a podcast title it's kind of unnecessary <laughs> so after three years I figured that one out and so yeah you can find us there we look forward to seeing you next time book five Hope. happy holidays everyone
1: Bye. good night good night